lost track. You know, nearly all of the Coen Brothers films, um, mm-hmm. including um, Miller's Crossing, Fargo, No Country for Old Men, Barton Fink, Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Spike Jones's Being Mal- John Malkovich adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are, uh, David R- Russell's Three Kings. So many amazing films, and I just think how much you added to the complexity of those stories and the feelings of the stories. But I was wondering, if you were to write Carter Burwa Alive, what would that score be? How would you set it up in those key moments? The theme? <laughs> I, would never, I would never take a project <laughs> like that. <clears throat> it's not that interesting. When I look at a film, I normally think, what is missing from that? And that's what I'm trying to bring. I'm trying to find something that I think isn't there and that I could bring that would make it more um, interesting, uh, make it more cinematic, maybe more dramatic, um, what have you. So in, yeah, in my life, I guess it would be like, you know, maybe more, um, more violence, more, uh, <laughs> more romance, more, um, I don't know. Uh, it's not, you know, that's the thing you, you learn very quickly. If you look at movies that are based on reality, based on biography, mm-hmm. which is what your question is about, that, uh, reality and real lives don't actually make good stories. Typically it doesn't, the shape isn't good. Um, and, my life is just like that, too. It's just not actually, it's not very dramatic, and particularly the ends are always wrong. Uh, the ends of biographies are, um, um, just don't work out very well, because they're not, lives tend to peter out, they don't tend to, like, reach some giant climax and then, um, and then be uh, resolved, or mm-hmm. what have you. Yeah, I would never, I would never write music for my, <laughs> for my life, and, and, and indeed, I find whenever I do work on films that are based on, um, real lives it's it usually their issues i did a film based julian assange and oh, yeah. um yeah it's like it has the same problem like of course he's not he hasn't died yet but you know it's very dramatic the material and everything yeah. but it still doesn't make it good the shape isn't like the shape of a film um yeah so i understand yeah you don't have that liberty but i guess i was just that was a roundabout way of also asking you about um, your childhood or how you came to music and then film scoring, which I wasn't, I guess you also studied architecture. You did many different things. Yeah, I mean, I haven't studied uh, music really, other than yeah. I, when I was um, about 10 or 11, I guess I had piano lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that, you know, parents make children take piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And um, and as soon as I could stop, uh, as, as <laughs> put my foot down and stop, I did. I didn't, um, I didn't find it uh, engaging. And... Um, and to this day, I don't really enjoy write, playing written music. I don't even pl- enjoy playing my music. Uh, I, I like just um, making things up. But they don't... Music education for children, at least in this country, doesn't typically involve that. They don't have classes in improvisation or, or music theory for, um, for young kids. Right. I don't really understand why. I mean, the, people have tried it. Um, Carl Orff had a system that was more like that was very much like that actually in Germany in the like 20s and 30s and 40s but um, it's uh, it's not what was done here and certainly not what I experienced so yeah my musical education just completely killed any interest in music I would have had and it was only later when I was a teenager a friend showed me a little bit about improvisation on the piano and um, and that got me back into playing uh, and that's why I'm doing this now it's just I really do it was very therapeutic as a teenager, as an adolescent, to sit at the piano and just express things that I couldn't express in some other way. That's 
that was the role of music for me as I was growing up. Yes, it's very interesting that you bring that up. Yes, once the imagination is, is engaged, then people are willing to go through any obstacle. Once I mean, the uh, incredible thrill of creating something. And, uh, and, and I imagine for you too, since you're primarily working for film, and then to see that with the images, with the actors. And I guess we should uh, talk about, you've been, I mean, you're, I think, most known for your collaborations with the Coen brothers, but also um, yeah, with like uh, three billboards outside Ebony, Missouri, Oscar nominated, also Carol, beautiful films. And let's talk about some of those films and how the conversations you might have had with the directors at the beginning of the process, looking at scripts, and um, how you brought that complexity, you know, the different stages. Well, it's, um, it's interesting the extent to which the process is always similar, because film follows a certain, you know, um, series of steps where something is written, and then they... they get a cast and then the film is approved and then they shoot it and then they um, and once it's shot that's usually when the composer begins to work and and then um, it's edited the music's added and that's film uh, so it's a process that's the, sim the same in a way with all films but at the same time every film is really quite different and I don't find there's any one approach um, that works so for instance uh, with take the Coen brothers because we've done I don't know what 13 or 14 films even though we've done that and we obviously know each other's working methods very well, still, to a surprising extent, everyone is different. Every film presents its own issues. And um, I'll read the script before they shoot the film and we'll talk about ideas, different approaches, but I don't typically write music until they have shot. Because until I see the, the, the way the actors have interpreted the script, the way the cinematographers interpreted it, it's... There's so many different ways to shoot a script that I don't find the script is not the film, and I don't find it that helpful to me. So um, I'll I'll watch the film, and then, as I say, you know, my general attitude is that the music should bring something to the film that isn't already there. For instance, I think in you know a lot of action films, the music is really there to amplify what you're seeing on screen. You you, know, you intensify it. That's not typically what, the way I look at it. Um, so I think when you began and said that I'm adding complexity to the film experience. That's the way I look at it, too. I, I want it to be a rich, complex, um, emotional experience, and not just so that you're not just experiencing one thing at a time, so there, there are dissonances in your you know, mind and your heart. And um, So I'm trying to think of what's not there, and, um, and that could have to do with story. For instance, uh, the Coen's and I did a movie called True Grit, where I felt that it's about a 14-year-old girl who goes out into um, this lawless territory to try to capture the the guy who shot her father it's obviously impossible for a 14 year old girl to do that but i felt that in the book the way that it's the way you it's sort of explained is that she she's just um taken on so much church learning the idea of um the idea of vengeance and the idea of righteousness are just are so uh, at the center of her being that that's what lets her do it. So I, my idea to the, that I pitched to the Coen brothers was that it would be nice if the score was based on um, hymns, um, um, church music, things, for instance, that she would have heard in the 19th century. And um, uh, and they bought that, that idea. I actually pitched it before they um, went to go shoot. And so while they were off shooting, I was going through 19th century Protestant hymnals and looking for pieces that I thought would be useful. And then this, that doesn't... 
answer the whole question, you still have to figure out, well, how are we going to play that? Are we going to play it like it's really in church, like you have a pump organ? Or And in the end, we didn't do that. We moved it away from church, where it's played with on piano and symphony orchestra. So it doesn't sound like church music, but the tunes themselves did come from that tradition. So that's, that's a film that presented a certain question to me, and I was out with a solution. But another film, like No Country for Old Men, in that film, the problem was that the tension and suspense of that film, which is the heart of the film, was um, it was aided by silence. The quieter it got, the more you could just hear footsteps on a carpet or something, the more it made your skin crawl. <laughs> and, um, so when you heard music, it always deflated that. It, whenever there was music um, in the film, it actually fought the film. And um, and so there's the, the question, so how are we going to get music into this film when you whenever we add it, it makes the film worse. Mm. And the trick there was to fade the music in underneath things like wind or the sound of cars and trucks. So you could never notice the music had arrived, but it was still there to do dramatic things, but to, to manipulate the audience's emotions. But, but you didn't know there was music because when you notice music, it sort of somehow it defeated the reality that the film was trying to create. So anyway, and I could go on and on. Every yeah. film presents its own problems, and um, I do, to a fair extent, consider what I do to be problem solving. I like look at the film as uh, the issues it presents, the problems and the opportunities, and then try to find the best way to solve that. And then in terms of, I thought it was interesting because in a way, and I'd, I'd heard you also speak about when you first came to film scoring and um, you watched the birds film, and right. <laughs> and you. And you realize there's no score per se, but there's bird song sort of orchestrated. Uh, but I was thinking about how you write for characters, uh, and, and then with the big ensemble. I mean, can you? I thought that was interesting. I'm not always noticing it myself when there's music. Right, uh, of course. Yes. Not, yeah. yeah, when you're doing your job well, it's <laughs> it's exactly it's beautiful, but it's it's not distracting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it varies. I mean, sometimes the music is meant to not often, honestly, yeah. in the films that I do, but. Sometimes the music is meant to actually grab your attention. Yes. Um, one film I did with the Coen Brothers called Hail Caesar is about Hollywood back in the age when films did have lots of big music. And sure. there in that film, there's music is often, <laughs> you know, really grabbing your attention. Um, but uh, but that's right. I'd say mostly what I do. It, it's um, it um, and it's, and certainly in any film, there's a big role for music in. Um, manipulating the audience subliminally. You're not supposed to notice it, that's right. It's mm -hmm. like having a mental and emotional effect on you, but one that you're not supposed to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just that it's, well, that's right, it's so internalized then. Right. So it's, it's beautiful. Um, you, you wrote something uh, about uh, your work on Carol, which is, again, one of these very subtle films. There is no widely accepted explanation for the importance of music to humans, but one possibility is its ability to express and relieve emotional tensions that can't be put into words. So as you explore that in Carol. Well, um, so the situation in Carol is of a female-female um, a, a relationship in the 50s when that just wasn't, you know, there wasn't any social acceptance of it. And in fact, the characters never even use the word lesbian, that it's so far outside their 
um, their realm of experience. They haven't read books about that. They, you know, and even though the character of Carol has had um, lesbian relationships, it's just the word doesn't come up, and they just don't talk about it in those terms. <clears throat> and um, the younger woman, Therese, who's she, it's her point of view that we experience in the film. She, um, she also she's having these feelings, but she has no cultural context uh, for how to express them, uh, identify them, or uh, or act on them. Um, so, for that film, yes, definitely an important part of the music was um, was speaking for characters who Therese is often just mystified. You see her sometimes; she's fascinated with Carol but also mystified as to what it means and um, that she is fascinated in this way. And the music is, uh, is saying all these things that she can't put together, she, uh, she can't express. Um, so at the same time, I wouldn't say that it's a romantic score. Uh, you know, if you listen to that music, I don't think your first word would be it's romantic and you didn't have the film in front of you. Yeah. But, um, but when you put the film together with the music, I think it's... Um, powerfully romantic. It has to do with the, what's not in the film and the music providing that, and then the tension between the two the, uh, um, is where the romance comes in. Yeah, and that, that longing and all those complicated desires. And we right. won't go into that. It's a very interesting It is story. really, you're right. It's long, longing is the perfect word for it. It's, uh, yeah. My name is Allison Bevany. I'm a graduate student at Northwestern University in the MFA in Writing for the Screen and Stage program. I ultimately hope to write for film and television, but what first attracted me to film, long before I knew I wanted to write stories for the screen, was music. I have a very vivid memory of watching Jurassic Park for the first time, but it's not, strangely, just the images I saw that have stuck with me. Instead, it's the music, the John Williams score, that I hear in my memory. Though I have very little musical ability, I am today a huge fan of film scores. And I was, as a result, thrilled to be the Associate Interviews Producer for this episode of The Creative Process, a conversation between Mia Funk and composer Carter Burwell. As a writer, I was struck by Carter's understanding of the purpose of music and film, and how that relates to my own work as a screenwriter. Adding complexity, creating dissonances of the heart and mind because of the tension between what you see and what you hear, adding what's not there, what the script lacks, what the film needs, what the audience might wonder, are all explanations provided by Carter in this episode. He gives examples from his own work. How could a little girl really avenge her father's death in true grit? How could two women express the love they feel for one another at a time when the right words were unspeakable and maybe even unknowable in Carol? This, coupled with Carter's assertion that the script isn't the film and that he doesn't rely on it alone ever to create a film score, made me think of a crucial aspect of writing for the screen. Subtext. The implicit and the unspoken in your script both in the conversations between character and in the thematic associations and connections that you don't spell out on the page, are what make a story compelling. Those questions, those things that you can't answer with words, how could a little girl avenge her father's death in the dangerous old west? How would two women express love in a time when that love was forbidden, when they may have lacked the words? Currently in my playwriting class, I've been tasked with writing a 10-page play that is a love story marked by cruelty. The supposed dissonance between love and cruelty is what I creatively need to speak to, and yet it's something I can't explain with a piece of dialogue that the audience will hear. The actions between my characters, the way they speak to one another, that is where the relationship between these two opposites must emerge. If I'm successful, if I can hint at what might tie love and cruelty together, a composer like Carter could illuminate that meaning further, 
Music evokes that which we cannot describe in words. Though Carter can with music say what we, the screenwriters, can only imply, I was also struck by certain similarities in our creative processes. Carter views writing music for film as part problem solving, part free association. He walks away from the film while working um, with an emotional or thematic question in mind and ruminates on it in front of the piano, while also allowing his mind to wander to other things. He even sometimes has a newspaper on the piano as he works. This alchemy of solving a creative problem with an openness toward the subconscious mirrors what I too do with my writing. I often leave my computer behind and walk around with a question about my script in my head. My mind wanders and I let it. When I return, another piece of the narrative puzzle has almost always been solved, or perhaps transformed into something I haven't yet thought of at all. To hear how similar the creative process can be, even as it's widely different and distinct depending on the medium, reminds me that to create is human and universal. If you're just joining us, we're talking with film composer Carter Burwell. It's so, and as you look at images, or I I don't know, like as you look at colors, or as you, are you, how do you, do you just produce sounds? Um, Well, so I, usually what I do is I, I look at the film, and then I go away from the film. I will watch the film, but when I'm writing, I usually begin away from the film. I don't want to be watching it. I don't want to be too locked into a particular scene or, or honestly to the film itself. I really just want to be thinking about the film and thinking about, as I say, the sort of emotional, dramatic issues that the film presents. And I sit usually at the piano. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and there are a number of themes in Carol that came in different ways. There's, there's one theme that is almost like a hymn. We were talking about hymns in True Grit. It's almost like a hymn and it's just supposed to present the, this, the spiritual level of what's of what's going on. That um, because the way the film is shot, it's very um, a lot of times the film is even shot through panes of glass, colored glass or dirty glass. It's like um, there are all these things that are um, between you and the characters, between the characters and what they perceive. There's the, the screens basically up and. Um, I want the music to be able to maybe get on the other side of that screen and say something about, like, you know, some deep thing in, inside the character. Uh, there are a number of, number of scenes like that. There's also a scene where... Uh, so that's what provoked me to write something that's almost hymn-like. There's another scene in which um, Carol... Sorry, Therese first goes for a ride with Carol to her house, and it's shot with these very tight close-ups of... So that Therese is just... She's almost in a... She's in this heightened state where she just sees Carol's gloves, or she just sees the radio, or she just, you know, it's she's very, like, like your vision has been, like, you know, um, contracted. And um, and I wanted to go with that in the music, make it sound like you were in an altered state of mind, so the, the piano just piles up in these clouds of notes, um, so that it's very, just odd, like you're in a different mm-hmm. world. But this is all... You know, I make it sound like I'm solving problems, which is true, but there's free association involved. Like, it's not that you can get from that sh- that scene to the idea of piano and clouds of notes yeah. in, in a direct logical way. It just seemed, as I sit at the piano and I play, I think, hmm, this might be, you know, yeah, and I go a little farther that way. And I try to, when I'm writing, I'm trying to make sure that there is always this possibility for free association and for random events mm-hmm. and mistakes um you know i try to often when i'm playing i try to 
think about something other than what I'm playing. I may stare at the ocean or even read the newspaper. I put the newspaper up on the piano and I'm doing that while I'm playing. And then when I hear my fingers do something that, oh, that's interesting, then I will try to pursue it, kind of try, try to chase the idea that isn't necessarily even my idea. It just came from chance. Chance. Well, I think or the subconscious. It's all, there yeah. are any, any number of ways to look at it. I think that when you have that reached that level of mastery, even though you say that you're like learning with each project, but if you achieve that level of mastery, it means you can play, like the the freedom right. of that. You relax. You you really know, and then that can take over. So I think that's really beautiful. I believe in that a lot. And then what's interesting too with your music, and I can't speak intelligently about music, but that you're n you're not following the conventions, the expectations of what I understand as you mentioned certain things like true grit or that you're not writing the conventional music for that. So I I think um, I bought three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and how we have complicated feelings about these characters and how you might approach our evolving um, emotions for them if you could set that yeah, up. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, Yes, when I first read the script, I thought, yes, that it was very much, it reminded me a little of Sergio Leone's um, Spaghetti Westerns, and that small group of very distinctive characters whose alliances keep shifting, and you're not sure who's going to end up, you know, they, they, they occasionally lie with each other, then they, you know, then they, um, um, you know, then they turn on each other, and you, you don't know um, how it's going to go. It also is, to me, was also reminiscent of Martin's plays, um, some of which take place on islands in Ireland where it's a small community where everyone knows everybody else. Everyone went to school together and they know each other painfully well. Um, and so they can be terribly honest, but they can never, because they know they're going to spend the rest of their lives around each other, they, you know, it's not like you have to worry that much about hurting someone's feelings. You'll, you know, Yeah, but um, you know someone's going to be gossiping about you. Yeah, yeah, you know everything. Yeah, so, and that, you know, there's that to it too, um, but um, so my first reaction was, yeah, I should, um, I'll just write a theme for each character, like some little thing, like like um, what Ennio Morricone did for Sergio Leone, like it could just be one harmonica note plays this character. Whenever you see him, there's that harmonica note or there's whatever guitar for another character. But um, but when I pursued that, it didn't it didn't work. What happened was it was too reminiscent of the spaghetti westerns, and so it it took you out of this film. It made you think that we were referring to other films in the music. So um, so I pulled it back from that idea. But I still kept some of the... I think the thing that I kept from Ennio Morricone was um, the idea, the willingness to get melodramatic at times. For instance, when the billboards are burning, the music just, that's, you know, just go for it. We're going to, you know, this is... It has to be a cathartic in a way for uh, for Fran's character at the end when she realizes she can't save the billboards and we all have mm -hmm. to have the music has to drive to this point where when she falls on the ground at the end you know we all feel that feeling that she's the the billboards are a symbol for her of her lost daughter and she's now lost the billboards too and it's just got a and it, Morricone and Italian composers in general are very good at like driving the emotions up to you know mm -hmm. very yeah. high pitch. Mm -hmm. um, and even though all we really have in that score largely is percussion and guitar and mandolin, um, I think we do bring in some strings there to just try to like 
you know, to amplify those feelings, and which I think is something, you know, I learned from Morricone, not to, you know, that as, as modest as your score may be, and that score is mostly guitar and mandolin and bass, um, that sometimes you, you know, you just want to make it sweeping and, uh, you know, let the music get bigger than, uh, than the actual situation that we're in, so that it becomes more about the meaning of the thing instead of the, the thing itself that you're seeing. Um, I should say, when I started out doing film scoring, those scores of Morricone were very important to me because I had I was working on films like Raising Arizona where we had no money, and it meant that... But his scores showed me that, yeah, you could just choose four really good instruments, very really yeah. distinctive instruments, and make a real score. You know, like in yeah. Raising Arizona, it's like banjo and yodeling. But anyway, that was the approach with three billboards. Was I ended up getting away from playing play the characters and in a way play more of the situation that they're in than the, the characters themselves. All right, and then speaking of characters, then as much as you have um, uh, frequent collaborators and filmmakers, there's also certain actors like Francis McDormand you've written to, and, and how do you, even though there are different characters in each film, um, how do you tune into them? Do they have a sound, or what do you think about their voice? Or No, I, I don't um, honestly pay any attention to the... The fact that it's the same actor I've worked with multiple right. times, I'm really just thinking about the character, and uh-huh. um, so to me, Fran just disappears into. And, and I mean, you're, it's always Fran, obviously. No one else is like that on screen, but um, but I don't think of her as Fran. I think of um, the character and, and the story. Really, the technology is changing the way that we communicate with ourselves and our imaginations, and uh, film is also going through um, significant changes at the moment with the streaming platforms, but. Uh, what do you think is the, uh, in this um, technological age, what is the importance of music and the humanities? And how could we better uh, integrate it into our uh, educational system like you were talking about? Well, I mean, I think the, the importance of um, the humanities is the same as it has always been. I mean, I think that that's, that doesn't change. You need to be able to communicate with other human beings and you need a culture within which to do that because the culture is what gives us, you know, communication is based upon a mutual understanding of, of symbols. Uh, and so that's, you need a culture to give you that. Um, and without studying the humanities, we're not able to do that. We you know, are not able to communicate. And um, in particular, we're not able to, you know, there are certain things that humans always face, like death, love, these and who that will always be discussed and always be at the center of our concerns. Um, I don't think there's any way to talk about them or even really understand them without um, without seeing how the how people have dealt with them for the last few thousand years, and that's that's the humanities. Um, so that's art, that's literature, that's music. Um, so you know, I, I don't think the meaning of and the need for humanities has changed at all. I don't think technology has any bearing on it whatsoever. Oh, an increased need for our, I don't know, have we become disconnected a little bit? But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that, again, I don't really feel that, particularly right now, technology, yes, I know that we feel like our world is suffused with technology, but yeah, it's that. not, um, they're just tools for us to use, and, uh, as many people have said, this is not as revolutionary as it was 100 years ago when we suddenly had telephones and cars and things. That, that really changed things. This doesn't really change. I mean, the Internet and, and handheld computers doesn't really 
change that much because after all the internet's been around for decades and the computers have been around for decades and it's just incremental changes um, so I don't know I don't find technology to enter into I think it gives us great tools I mean I'm not sure that I could I probably couldn't be a film composer if it weren't for technology I if I had to write music by hand yeah. I would be so slow I would never have gotten into this world at all yeah. um, as I say I'm not a trained composer technology has actually allowed me to do you know, what I do um, I'm sure I would still be playing piano if uh, you know without computers but I would not be a composer so to me, it's a, the technology is just a bunch of tools, and it doesn't really change very much about uh, the role of art in in our lives or the need for it. I'm not sure it's changed at all. Well, thank you so much, uh, Carter Burwell, for uh, the beautiful ways uh, you use those tools and what you have given to us, um, and how you've added uh, your voice to the humanities. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. <laughs> You're welcome. This interview was conducted by Mia Fung with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Allison Bevany. Assignment Editor is Sorella Lark. Digital Media Coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andalus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leaving Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.